And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, November 9th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masirlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how exporting weapons becomes risky for contractors who are doing the exports. Plus, HUD has work to do to stop duplication of benefits. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal employees and annuitants have yet another big health premium increase coming their way in 2024. But that's not the only reason the FEHB participants ought to take advantage of that upcoming open season. It starts Monday. Joining me as we discuss this and other health benefit changes on the horizon, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, let's begin with a reminder of how much these premiums are going up next year. So, Tom, on average, that premium increase, at least for the FEHB participants' share, is going to be going up 7.7%. And of course, you know that that means because it's an average that not all plans are going to be increasing. Some are increasing more. Some might not be increasing at all. Some may be increasing less. So that's Just one reason that federal health benefit experts are encouraging participants to take a look during open season. The very common statistic that we all hear is that just about 5% or even less than that actually make changes during open season each year. So OPM and other health experts are encouraging more participants to take a look given the premium increase. There could be, you know, up to thousands of dollars in cost savings each year if participants make the right choices. You got to do that homework, definitely. You know, spread those brochures out on your screen or get the paper ones and put them on the dining room table. I guess 7.7% doesn't seem as bad when compared to last year when they went up 8.7% and the year before that, three something percent. So some pretty sharp increases accumulating over the last couple of years. And meantime, because of the pullout of one of the major carriers, there's many fewer plans for federal employees coming up in 2024. That's right, Tom. The number of plan options that are going to be available, it's dropping from 271 down to 158. So that's more than a 40% decrease in the number of plan options. The plan options are often variable by geographic region. So maybe not all of those options are available to every single participant based on where they live. But generally, as you alluded to, the reason that the number is dropping off so significantly is because Humana is exiting the market. So it's not just unique to the FEHB program, but as well as other similar programs to FEHB. So if you are an enrollee who was in a Humana plan or any other plan leaving the FEHB program, there's a handful of others besides Humana. You'll receive notification that you will have to make an election during open season. If you don't make an election, you'll automatically be enrolled in the lowest cost nationwide plan, which is GEHA. Okay. And then there are some options specifically for members of the military. Let's talk about those. So this is specifically in the Dependent Care Flexible Spending Account, or DCFSA, Basically, what that does is it lets participants make pre-tax contributions for dependent care services. So this can include things like the cost of preschool, summer day camps, and then before or after school programs for children or adult daycare programs for adults. This is a program that has existed for quite a while, but now it's going to be available to active duty military members 
The Department of Defense estimates that there's going to be about 400,000 newly eligible members for that flexible spending account program. So they're encouraging and OPM is encouraging as well military members to take a look if they're interested in that sort of coverage. All right. And OPM, you know, takes an active role in the shapes and in the offerings of what the healthcare insurance industry does under the FEHB. I think it's one of their finer moments every year because these plans tend to be at least as they're always at least as good and often much better than what's available in the private sector, frankly, even from the same carriers. And maybe that's because the federal employee and annuitant population is maybe above average in health or health demand. But OPM did lay some new requirements on the carriers for 2024. Tell us about those. So one of the big changes that federal employees and annuitants will see is changes to coverages for infertility treatments. So if you're someone who is thinking about family planning and you're going to need that type of treatment, that's something to definitely take a look at during open season this year. The new requirement specifically is for FEHB carriers to cover two forms of artificial insemination and the associated drugs with those, as well as three cycles of drugs for in vitro fertilization. That's quite a significant coverage because this can cost tens of thousands of dollars and the drugs associated with those procedures do cost more than are do make up for more than a third of the cost there. So, you know, it's not going to cover everything and it's still going to be quite an expense, but it's definitely something to take a look at. In addition to infertility, you're also going to see expanded coverage for anti-obesity medications, telehealth options, gender-affirming care, and prenatal and postpartum care for mothers. Right. And uh, we should point out, too, that uh, this is something Kevin Moss told us from Checkbook Guide to these plans, is that these are not extra riders or something you purchase as an option. These are available to everybody on the plan. So in some sense, you know, grandma is subsidizing the infertility costs for the grandkids if they're having trouble conceiving a baby. But now there is help for that. So for those that are annuitants that are on Medicare, the big area of concern is the prescription drug prices covered by Medicare Part D or plans that are the equivalent of Part D and some major changes coming there thanks to federal legislation. That's right. That is the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed last year in 2022. And federal annuitants will see some significant cost savings available to them because of those changes. For example, there's caps on insulin, the cost of insulin, as well as out-of-pocket spending caps. And because of that, this makes, according to several federal health benefits experts, including uh, Kevin Moss, who we spoke to together, this makes... Medicare Part D, very appealing to FEHB participants, and uh, they're encouraged to definitely take a look during open season. Through FEHB, you can access Medicare Part D in in two different types of plans. So you have the Medicare Advantage plans. These have been around for at least the last couple of years, and the number of Medicare Advantage plans available is actually expanding to 28 total in 2024. So that's one option. And then the other option is a new type of plan called a prescription drug plan or PDP. And there are 17 of those that are going to be available in 2024. So FEHB participants do have a lot of options there if they're looking to get that Medicare Part D coverage. And some carriers are going a year early with the national requirement of a $2,000 cap on drug outlays by annuitants, by, by people on Medicare. That's not 
coming officially till 2025, but some of the carriers are doing it next year. That's right. So it's definitely uh, prudent to take a look during open season. In one area where you can at least look and see what's available is OPM's uh, plan comparison tool. This lets you look by zip code and at different coverages you might be looking at. So that's one way to find a little more detail on what is the right option for you. And anything going on with dental and vision insurance? Right. This is an interesting one, Tom, because the FedFit program itself is not changing uh entirely, but there is a change for the eligibility of the program. So you have tens of thousands of temporary part-time seasonal employees, as well as those in the USPS, who are going to become eligible to get dental and vision care through that program. There was a special enrollment window earlier this year, that of course has now ended, but anyone who is a seasonal employee or in the USPS they will be able to enroll in FedVIP if they choose to during open season. So for those employees, this is a very important time as well. And just again, to highlight the dates here, open season runs November 13th through December 11th. So that's the time that uh, you can look and see what is available to you. And also be sure to tune in to Federal News Network's online open season exchange, which is next week. And you and I both participated in that. So lots of information there. I guess dental and vision is kind of like a really enticing bagel. See it and then sink your teeth into it. I guess you could say that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com and tune in to FedLife next Wednesday at 1 o'clock here on 1500 AM for a more detailed discussion of what's coming to FEHB in 2024. Still ahead right now, HUD has work to do to stop duplication of benefits. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's a program with a long name, Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery and Mitigation. It entails a lot of money from housing and urban development grants, $82 billion over 10 years. But the HUD Office of Inspector General has found some oversight challenges in preventing duplication of benefits. Here with the details, Deputy IG Stephen Begg. Mr. Begg, good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. And just give us the outlines of how this program works, what the money goes to, and what its purposes are. The program is uh, designed to provide grant funding to state and local governments to address unmet disaster recovery needs. So HUD's program works in concert with other federal programs, and it's designed to come um, after other programs have provided assistance to states and localities uh, dealing with the aftermath of disasters. And it's really designed to be a supplemental or gap-filling program for long-term recovery needs. So this is not just 8A housing or HUD overseen housing, but anything housing-related in a given area that might need recovery funds? The block grant structure is very broad, and so it can be used for a wide range of activities. It can go towards repairing or rehabilitating homes that were damaged. It can be used for new construction, and it can also be used for home buyer or renter assistance for those who are looking for relocation services in the aftermath of a disaster. It can be used for many things, and it's designed to be flexible so that the communities can really tailor their programs to meet their local needs. So what you were looking at was whether HUD oversees the program with an eye toward preventing duplication of efforts, because when it comes to disaster recovery, there's probably 10 federal programs besides this one flowing to those states, plus the state's own programs. 
That's right. We think on the federal side, it's upwards of 30 programs that are working in concert. And in the housing space, some of the primary players that HUD deals with are the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the Small Business Administration. And so, as I mentioned, HUD's funding comes in after those have taken place. And so what we're looking at here is um, how HUD works with its grantees to make sure that if they're using HUD funds for activities, that's not a duplication of something that FEMA or SBA has already funded. Right. So if 10 bay windows were blown out, you don't want to pay for 30 new bay windows. Correct. Putting it in simple terms. And so what you found is that HUD was okay in overseeing the initial recipient of the grant, which is the state or local government, but not the details of what comes next when they reallocate the money. Is that a fair way to put it? You know, I would say that what we have identified as an opportunity for HUD to enhance its oversight is the timing of when they're working with grantees on establishing sufficient procedures to prevent the duplication of benefits. And so in terms of the way the grant rolls out, HUD is asking or HUD is required actually by federal law to certify that before it gives grant money to an entity that it has sufficient procedures in place to prevent that duplication. That happens very early on in the process. So we see it about 60 days after HUD announces a grant is going to a state or a locality. That state has to provide documentation about its duplication of benefits procedures, what they'll do to prevent it. HUD then has to certify that's sufficient uh, in its eyes to, to authorize giving them grant money. What ends up happening, though, is that at that point in time, the grantees haven't fully fleshed out the programs that they'll operate. So they don't know the details of their rehabilitation or their construction or their home buyer assistance programs. So it's hard to have specifics on how you'll prevent that duplication if you don't know exactly what you're going to do. So HUD ends up certifying a high-level approach, a policy-level approach of saying we will, we will prevent duplications generally. But then what we would like to see and what, what we recommended HUD do is make sure that before the grantees start providing assistance to applicants – so before a renter comes and says, I need rental assistance, that that duplication of benefits process is in place. They've assessed it, and they believe it's adequate to prevent any duplication. It sounds like these things really need to be in place before a disaster occurs, because then you get into that situation where the government wants to get money out fast. And we're learning, like in pandemic relief, charitably, 20 percent of the money was waste, fraud, and abuse, probably half of it. But that's what you want to prevent. Ideally, it would be great if duplication of benefits procedures were standardized across this disaster recovery programmatic landscape. HUD's unique in that way in the sense that their program is not authorized by federal law permanently. And so there isn't a regulatory framework for how disaster recovery funds flow through HUD's programs. What that means is that Congress appropriates funds for this program on a disaster-specific basis. And then HUD, in turn, creates program requirements through federal register notices. And so the requirements can change uh, for each one. And there's a lack of standardization on some of the, the duplication of benefits side over the course of time. That being said, HUD has taken a lot of proactive steps to consolidate some of the guidance, to streamline it, provide additional training and resources to its grantees. And we think they've gone about as far as they can go without... Congress stepping in and permanently authorizing a structure so that they can create standard regulations around this. We are speaking with Stephen Begg. He is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. That's an interesting point. Without a standard, long-term, permanent authorization, then the agency and any agency is constrained by how much regulation it can bring to a program, so it kind of does it 
ad hoc every time Congress authorized funds. It's like a temporary authorization in effect. That's right. And, and what we've seen over the course of time is that HUD's program requirements will change over the course of each of those temporary authorizations. That can create confusion for grantees. Some grantees in Texas, for example, are administering grants that cover disasters in multiple years uh, over the course of a large period of time. And if you have to navigate multiple sets of requirements for multiple disasters, it can become quite confusing, even for experienced grantees. Well, if you have a disaster that takes place in, say, September, it could be till February of the next calendar year before roofs start being repaired and this kind of thing. So you almost need a multi-year approach, it sounds like. Absolutely. You know, what we have said over the course of time, and the Government Accountability Office has said as well, and HUD recognizes, is that without a permanent structure and without a regulatory framework that grantees can rely on and plan to in advance, it really delays the funding reaching the local level. So the communities and individuals in need wait longer because we're restarting the program and standing it up each time. Grantees can't plan their activities until they know what the requirements will be. And if HUD doesn't have requirements in place until after the money comes, you know, it just really frustrates the timing. Well, I mean, they could look at it like someone who makes a smoothie every morning. There's no recipe, but you have pre-measured amounts of this, that, and the other that goes into it. Couldn't they just pull some regulations or some rules off the shelf when there is appropriations following a disaster, and then those are ready to roll when Congress, if it should authorize this program permanently? That's a great point, and and HUD has really uh, leaned into that type of thinking, Tom. They've developed what's called a consolidated notice where they are trying to pull those those standard or repeat-type requirements and put them in one place that can be referenced for future disasters. It's a little surprising that this hasn't come higher in Congress's kind of estimation given all this concern about the seeming level of disasters that are happening more and more frequently, more and more people affected, more housing is flooded or burned, you know, now. And uh, outside of your scope to tell Congress what to do. But has this been raised to Congress, to your knowledge? Uh, Absolutely. Our agency has testified on it numerous times. I've testified personally a few times on it. GAO has testified on it many times. And we've actually reported in our semi-annual report to Congress as a legislative recommendation that Congress take up permanent authorization because, in our view, the department has done almost everything in its control to advance this type of consistent framework. And so we're at the point where the only real source of finalization here is congressional action. In fairness to our stakeholders on the Hill, bills have been introduced many, many times. It just hasn't passed. Yeah, I would think there would also be pressure, I'm presuming, from at the state level to their individual delegations to maybe take this up because housing becomes more acute as a attention grabber the closer you get to the local level. That's right. One thing about the block grant program, though, is that it offers a wide range of flexibilities to states, which they enjoy and they want. And so in some ways, everyone is trying to strike a balance between creating that flexibility and creating the standardization so that the timing of the funding getting out gets better over time. The consistency and accountability is there to make sure it gets spent correctly. But then the states and localities have the flexibility to meet their local needs that they know best. In the meantime, you do have recommendations for HUD, though, since you can't recommend to Congress in this context. What are your chief recommendations, and does HUD sounds like they agree with them? We worked closely with HUD to craft recommendations that are workable for them. And, and what we focused on here is making sure that HUD can provide 
more detailed guidance to grantees on how to develop duplication of benefits procedures. So as they're working in the early days, HUD can give them more guidance and assistance on putting things in place from the start. And then our other two recommendations centered around making sure that HUD has a process for evaluating those duplication of benefits procedures before the grantees start providing money at the ground level. We really feel like it's important that that's in place before the money goes out rather than having it come in place as the money's going out. By the way, is there any evidence that duplicative benefits have gone out in any circumstances? Absolutely. The GAO recently published a report where they did a study and put together all of the sources of funding that are available in a disaster recovery scenario. And and they identified several instances in where there's evidence of potential duplication of benefits across HUD, FEMA, SBA, and then the National Flood Insurance Program. So there's absolutely evidence out there that it, that it does happen. Um, the scope and magnitude of it is something that is hard to quantify. Sure. And by the way, it is illegal for someone who is a recipient of these funds to take money from several programs for the same purpose. Absolutely. And, you know, it it can range from accidental or an oversight in the way that the program is being administered to an individual or an entity purposefully seeking duplicative benefits, which would be fraud. Stephen Begg is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, here's one element of good government the political appointees often overlook. But first, how exporting weapons becomes risky for contractors who make the exports. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Because of military aid to Ukraine and presumably Israel, the U.S. defense industrial base is strained right now. Manufacturers of platforms and ammunition must deal with a list of regulatory and legal challenges. For more, we turn to attorney Justin Chiarotto, a partner at Blank Rome. Justin, good to have you back. Great to be back, Tom. And we think of the defense industrial base as strained in terms of capacity to manufacture what's needed around the world and, you know, missile systems and, and ammunition and so forth. But what's emerging is the political risk, regulatory risk. What's going on? It's a really challenging time for the industry with a lot of uncertainty, sadly to say, both in our domestic politics, which is impacting the ability to keep the lights on in the first place, but also with a real explosion in geopolitical instability in recent years. And I think that's broadly informed by a transition away from what was more or less a, a unipolar world to one that's much more multipolar, right, with a fragmentation in trade, in our financial systems, and our alliances, and our supply chains. So you have this significant pivot away from a world where we were dealing with the global war on terror to one where really, really moving to what is going to be a great power competition with our near peer adversaries in China and Russia, and then conflicts you're seeing now in Ukraine and unfortunately also in Israel today. So there's a lot to manage in that. And I think what you're seeing with the defense base is a recognition that we haven't really positioned ourselves with the resources and the infrastructure necessary to meet those threats. So this is a time where we'll be playing catch up and where there's going to be a lot of effort to try and position us to navigate these challenges going forward. 
Well, what are the problems for contractors? I mean, if their client is the military, then all they have to do is make sure they ramp up with the machinery and the people they need to make what is ordered. So how does the international situation really affect them otherwise than a great business opportunity? Yeah, challenges in a couple of ways, right? Obviously, you've got the need for uh, the experience and the capabilities domestically. The size of the domestic industrial base has shrunk, so a lot of pressure on that side. But also, when you're dealing with the export of defense articles, you've got to deal with a whole other set of issues. Uh, export control laws, if you're dealing with international counterparties, I've got sanctions risk, right? I need to do business with people that meet, meet certain standards of ethics and conduct. I can't do business with certain prohibited entities. And so you introduce a, a lot of complexity for any contractor that is thinking about participating in that market. And it's going to be the biggest challenge for companies that are not really well steeped in that, right? So the major defense contractors will have the infrastructure and the systems and the sophistication to do this more easily than I think people down the supply chain or people that might be new to the market. Well, how does this work? Because let's take the howitzer shell, which is yeah. being exported all over the place. And there is some organic manufacturing capability of that in DOD, but they do buy a lot of it from several commercial entities. If Congress appropriates money to send a million shells to Ukraine or something, wherever they might go, do they get shipped to the DOD, which then ships them, or are the companies expected to get them to those countries themselves? And is that where yeah. the risk is? Great, great question, Tom. You've really got under the Arms Export Control Act, you've got a couple of ways for doing these foreign military sales. The first is through foreign military sales transactions where the U.S. government is going to be your contracting party. And they'll basically operate as a bit of a middleman between you, the contractor, and that foreign government. So that's going to look much more like a traditional U.S. procurement contract. The contractor may not even know, in fact, that they're participating in an FMS sale. So that's sort of bucket one. Bucket two are is known as the direct commercial sales or DCS uh, sales transactions, where the U.S. company is going to obtain a commercial export license for those defense articles from the State Department, which will allow them to negotiate with and sell directly to a foreign partner. So in both cases, those transactions are subject to U.S. export control laws and approvals from the State Department. But the DCS transaction is probably going to involve a little bit more compliance attention directly from the contractor, right? Because they're dealing directly with that foreign party, foreign buyer. Well, if the State Department is the control point, then shouldn't that make companies automatically safe from doing business with prohibited entities and that kind of thing? It's a necessary part, but not a, not a complete part of addressing those risks. Uh, you know, any company that has an international supply chain today or customer base needs to know who it's doing business with. It needs to be in place a system of controls that's suitable for what they're doing as far as making sure companies are not on the sanctioned or prohibited entities list, that they have a sufficient level of comfort, right, with who those counterparties are and, and really understanding where products that they're delivering internationally may be winding up. And so a big issue that we've seen come out of, of Ukraine in particular is U.S. technology, for example, appearing in weapons that the Russians have used against the Ukrainians. So there is a risk here is really, and you're seeing the Justice Department pay a lot of attention to this with the enforcement of the national security laws and sanctions compliance. It's getting tremendous attention. I think the Justice Department has characterized sanctions as the new FCPA, the new Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So it's, it's something that companies should be investing accordingly in and making sure that if they're operating internationally, that they're investing the resources necessary to make sure they're, they're doing business with the right folks. 
We're speaking with Justin Chiarotto. He's a partner at the law firm Blank Rome. How do sanctions work against an individual company? Because when the United States imposes sanctions, it's in the banking system, in the cash flows, and this kind of thing. How does it work? I guess it can be reciprocated against American entities operating overseas. Yeah, it sure can. And I think the, the, the big one to watch here is China. The um, Chinese anti-foreign sanctions law is now coming into, I think, clearer focus. And there were some major defense contractors earlier this year that were added to their prohibited entities list, limiting the ability to do import or export transactions with China, prohibiting new investment in China, limiting the ability of senior executives of those companies to, to get into China. And this really ties, uh, not surprisingly, to Taiwan, which in the recent NDAA was is now an authorized uh, FMS participant. So China is also using its economic power to put some pressure right on on U.S. supply chains. Now, as of now, right, major defense contractors in the U.S. are not going to be doing business with China. So it's not a direct and immediate impact as much on those companies. But for a large percentage of industry, particularly high-tech companies that may be involved in the energy transition market, this is a challenge because still have very strong connections with the Chinese economy and industry in a lot of these areas. So you have, you know, the U.S. and China, yes, they're in strategic competition in a lot of areas, but they're also still in partnership, you know, in some other areas and uh, still significant trade partners. So those companies, companies that may particularly have a, a technology footprint are going to need to be very careful about what kind of business opportunities they're thinking about pursuing. I mean, that's really the big difference between now and the Cold War is that the United States was much more economically independent and China was a relative puny economy in those days. And we didn't do business with Russia anyway. We didn't need anything from Russia except vodka maybe and caviar. So, But now, let's face it, the United States is almost completely economically dependent on China, just to take away the flowery language around it. All this electric car jazz and everything would grind to a halt in 10 seconds without China. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's well documented that China has a, a command position in critical minerals and resources necessary to transition to the clean energy economy. And this is a major national security problem for the United States. China's doing this not only within their domestic capacity, but also in alliances and arrangements with countries in, in other areas where these critical minerals in particular are in abundance. So it's going to be a tricky path to walk for the United States and its allies, and in particular companies that are trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too, that may be on both sides of this issue. So I think it's a real risk area. Again, the major defense contractors, very sophisticated, very seasoned. Uh, there's no question about what their markets are going to look like, right, and under, under this new order. Uh, but it's companies that may have technology that has dual use applications, right, uh, that may have conglomerates that have interests and, you know, in civil areas or, or, or clean energy, right, not necessarily just weapons, they're going to have to really balance uh, the, these risks going forward. As the old saying goes, it's complicated. <laughs> it is complicated. It is complicated. And it's getting more so. It's getting more so by the day. Justin Chiarotto is a partner at the law firm Blank Rome and chairman of its government contracts practice group. Thanks for joining me. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, here's one element of good government the political appointees often overlook. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
One of the best things a politically appointed agency head can do, well, too often they don't do. What is that? Well, for the answer, we turn to our professor of good government and longtime labor management observer, Bob Tobias. Bob, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. And you have studied this because this is the time of the political cycle in the nation when some of those first-term folks start to think about bailing. Yes, they do. Most political appointees, the average length is a little over two years, but most of these Biden appointees have stayed on, and it looks like they're going to stay on for the full first term. And it's at this time when they start thinking about, how do I want to be remembered? And most focus on the public policy they created, because it has the greatest potential coinage for a post-government resume. They know, and we know, that public policy creation is how historians who write about governance and potential future employers evaluate their time in office. Well, what are some of those public policy triumphs? It's not like we've had a new civil rights bill of 1965. Well, but the Biden administration did initiate and Congress passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, the $1 trillion infrastructure law, the first gun safety legislation in 30 years, the CHIPS Act that gave $53 billion in federal spending to manufacture semiconductor chips in the U.S., and the nearly $2 trillion Inflammation Reduction Act. It's a lot of trillions. When That's you a lot of trillions, Tom. But more importantly, it's hundreds and thousands of pages of regulations to implement this legislation. It's lawsuits challenging the legislation. And obviously, Congress is going to try to roll back some of those things that were passed during Biden's time of office. So these current crop of political appointees are going to say, we were present. When it happened, we were in the room where it happened. We know what the rationale is. We know who voted yes. We know who voted no. We can guide you, so hire us. That's the coin of the realm for the big law firms, the big consulting firms, and the big think tanks. And universities who want to hire stars from an administration to teach their students. And what do they talk about? Public policy creation. Yeah, that can get you into football coach salary territory. Yes, it can. (laughs) But very few make it into football coach territory these years. So these current crop are going to be like all, and they're going to point out what they participated in. But I hope, I really do hope, Tom, that some also want to be remembered for establishing processes and procedures to make the government run more effectively and more efficiently. And one important but underutilized approach to run the government more efficiently and effectively is through the creation of collaborative labor management relationships. You know, this kind of success has no resume value, zero resume value, because few non-federal employees or potential private sector employers care one whit about collaborative labor management relationships in the federal sector. But I would say that such a legacy is really commitment to political appointees who come to the federal government and say, I want to make a difference. But in their mind, when they come, it's public policy creation. And I suggest a focus on public policy implementation. 
We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a former union president and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. And let's talk about that collaboration. But I think it's fair to say that even the political appointees that come in and they do this resume burnishing, we should acknowledge they had some sense of serving the public and some sense of public service before coming in. No question. They did. And many of them have done a great job. I want more, Tom. I'd like them to do more than just that. All right. So tell us more about collaborative labor management and the importance of that. I mean, we're seeing some negotiations going on right now in several agencies. There are. So there are many of these current collaborative labor management relationships that were started by political appointees in President Clinton and President Obama years that have continued to make the government work better. Now, during the President George W. Bush and President Trump years, they were very much under the radar because creating and maintaining these kinds of relationships were banned. But many survived through the entire period of time because political appointee leaders, whether they were Republican or whether they were Democrat, recognized that the ability to design and implement needed change for better results occurs when federal employees through their unions participate in the design and the implementation of the needed change. Give us some examples. Well, I don't know whether I want to out these agency, these relationships who have been under the radar for so long, but there are several around that had employee-initiated change. And where the employer wanted to initiate change, these collaborative relationships work together to design and implement it faster without coercive bargaining. And so the benefit to the public occurred faster than in these relationships where they are at each other's throat all the time. Yes, they can't be the agencies since you want to keep them under the hood there. But, I mean, you look at Homeland Security, you look at Social Security, you look at uh, some of the big agencies like that, they've had rough times getting their basic bargaining agreement into place, hundreds of clauses, and they could be in court and with the FLRA tied up for, you know, the six or seven or eight or 12 really key clauses in these contracts. So this must be happening kind of under the radar then. It is. I've been following this for many, many years, and nobody ever puts out now, even in the Biden years, a press release saying, We just worked collaboratively and implemented and saved X dollars because that just brings the wrath of so many people and so many charges. They just keep it under the radar and they just keep doing business together. Do you think the fact that federal employee unions are proscribed by statute from bargaining over pay and benefits maybe focuses the discussions more on making things work better because they don't have the abstraction of how much you're going to Pay me. What can I get out of you? Well, that's right. Pay is off the books. And so if I'm a union leader, and I was a union leader, the idea of including the people I represented in solving the problems that they were facing in the workplace was a huge incentive to join and participate in the union. And they had so much satisfaction from making the workplace better, from removing the bottlenecks that always occur in any large institution. So when that happens, everybody benefits, Tom. 
It strikes me that knowledge is good for the unions to promulgate among employees because in the federal sector, one of the challenges for the unions, the big ones, is getting everybody or as many people as possible to join and pay dues, even though those that don't join and don't pay dues often benefit from the bargaining agreement that's in place anyway. That's a fact, Tom. And if you are a bargaining unit employee and you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm really terrific. I don't need a union. As a union leader, I can say, Tom, you might not need a union, but if you really want to participate in what's going on in the workplace, come join, and I'll put you on one of these teams to solve the problem that you've been complaining about now for two years. Sign up and play. Yeah, everybody thinks the five-day work week came about by natural selection or natural order of things, but maybe, maybe not. Or they think that all of this opportunity to work at home came about by magic or just because of COVID. But the unions have been working on alternative work schedules for years and years and years. So the groundwork was laid for what actually occurred. Bob Tobias is former federal union president and retired American University professor of federal executive leadership. Thanks so much for joining us, as always. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you on your journey. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to federal contracting, sometimes what's old is new and what's new is better than before. The Biden administration is resurrecting an enterprise software licensing initiative with more complete data and 20 years of understanding what it takes to be successful. It's all part of its Better Contracting Initiative. Federal News Network's Jason Miller got more from the senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Christine Harada. The Better Contracting Initiative is the next piece of that puzzle, and its goal is to ensure that taxpayers fundamentally get the best best value for their money, uh, namely through leveraging government data, expertise, and purchasing power to buy the goods and services that the government needs to serve the American people. And we do that via four different work streams. We're able to leverage our size and function much more as an organized buyer through using our acquisition data, leveraging lessons learned from buying experiences, eliminating price disparities, reducing post-award modifications that ultimately end up costing both programs and taxpayer dollars, uh, and certainly last but not least, reducing the risks of inflated prices in sole source environments. So it sounds like this is really focused on getting the best price for the agencies. Uh, I was at a industry day earlier this week from the Defense Information Systems Agency. They're focused on getting the best pricing. Is this something that's been talked a lot about? And, and you've heard from the Chief Acquisition Officers Council and others saying, hey, getting the best price at the right time for the right volume has really been a struggle for agencies? I don't know that I'd say it's a struggle so much as we really want to do better and more. Right. So we are leaps and bounds ahead of where we have, were, especially since if you think about it from the 2016 timeframe when I was here during the Obama administration with the amount of data that we have across the federal enterprise. Um, and so one of the areas of focus that we're doing today or that we're launching today around leveraging data to be able to help get the lower prices and better terms that you just talked about um, are certainly is certainly one of the first pillars around that. And to that end, we're launching a new centralized data management strategy supported by a new uh, draft OMB circular to facilitate a more robust sharing and analyzing of acquisition data across the federal enterprise. It's not just about pricing, but also what are the terms, what are the conditions to be able to help provide that kind of context 
Uh, it'll also include enhanced market research, vendor performance data, et cetera, to be able to, again, strengthen the agency's abilities to better negotiate their deals. We also are will be undertaking an effort to negotiate common enterprise-wide software licenses. Uh, we're looking to improve the government's negotiation posture to help reduce the price variance, as well as securing more favorable terms and conditions. And of course, especially in this particular case, improving and making more consistent our cybersecurity posture across the entirety of the federal government. On the data piece, uh, this is uh, fascinating. Now, a lot of the work that the General Services Administration has done over the last few years with whether it's the transactional data reporting or their uh, 4P portal, are you leveraging or, or taking advantage of a lot of that initial work? Yes, absolutely. It absolutely does build on a lot of the work that uh, the Transactional Data Reporting Program, or TDR program at GSA, has been working on for a number of years. We call it the high-def framework, or the high-definition acquisition data framework. Uh, the circular that you will see posted online later today uh, includes both a framework and a data environment that helps provide a little bit more of a coordinated approach to this. Um, it also includes some of the governance information around how we're all going to be collecting, uh, working together collectively. The rollout of the data strategy, give me some basics of, of who's going to lead it. Comes from your office or comes from GSA or Treasury Department? And then what are some of those kind of short-term goals around getting this data strategy in use, in, in place, and people can, you know, other other agencies can start taking advantage of it? Yes, the policy first is going to be coming out first and foremost from us here at OMB. Again, leveraging a lot of the lessons learned from various agencies that have actually been working on this. The framework will be supported by, again, the data, the much more higher definition acquisition data environment. That'll be provided through the agencies. Uh, we've got a number of the number of requirements in the circular itself that we're going to be working collectively with the CAO community to make sure that they are being implemented. It also, uh, the circular also includes requirements for agencies to very actively contribute uh, to like existing knowledge portals on innovative techniques and emerging technologies and making sure that they are posting it and organizing it uh, in a publicly available manner and sharing that across the system. And of course, uh, working with uh, other resources like FAI, uh, as well as DAU to help build out some of those related skills uh, as a core acquisition workforce capability. We will obviously make sure we can link to that uh, new circular and, and uh, of course the fact sheet that you all issued around the uh, Better Contracting Initiative on federalnewsnetwork.com so folks can find that easily enough. The enterprise software licensing. Now, Christine, this is something that was uh, attempted many times uh, over the years, and I think there's a little bit of frustration or a little bit of, uh-oh, here we go again. First of all, how many times did you hear, well, you know, Christine, we've done this before and it didn't work. Did you hear that about this initiative before, and, and what's different this time? Yeah, no, I, I certainly have heard that before, um, and I think, you know, a couple of things are really different about it first this time. I think, number one, we collectively as a community have evolved to be much more cohesive in this regard. I think, you know, back in the day when we first tried it what, seven or eight years ago, at this point, we didn't have the information. We didn't have the data that we do now. We didn't have the governance model around that data. We didn't have the sharing culture that we really tried to inculcate through the last seven, eight years. We've also stood up um, an entity at GSA called the IT Vendor Management Office or the ITVMO 
They have been phenomenal partners with us in working to help gather the contract documents and pricing information from agencies and really analyzing that. Uh, thanks to their support, they're currently taking a look at over 700 contract documents and pricing data. Uh, we've assembled an integrated project team consisting of a group of 14 experts from 13 different agencies of different skill sets of contracting officers, procurement attorneys, um, you know, subject matter experts uh, with particular softwares, et cetera, to develop that list of ideal government-wide terms and conditions. And last but not least, there have been an increasing number of cybersecurity incidents associated with these types of software that we as a federal government can no longer really tolerate from a risk management type of perspective. Recognizing this is a whole the nation kind of issue, uh, but this is something that really, that candidly was one of the bigger hooks, if you will, or uh, instigations for this particular effort again. Did you also hear from vendors who, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago who were a little tepid on this now are like, yeah, if you can make it so I don't have to have 12 different contracts with the Army or 15 different contracts with the Interior Department and I can have one, that would save us a ton of time and a ton of effort. Is that also what's driving this? That, we have certainly heard that uh, as well from our uh, stakeholder community, for which, by the you know, I'm very grateful because candidly, it also helped validate uh, the experience as well. I don't see it as a driver per se, but I was very heartened to hear many other vendor community folks expressing the same thing as well, because it only benefits the vendor community as well to see, you know, reasonably standardized terms and conditions and the products that they could be, should be selling to the federal government. And it should not have to be that we should make it easier for the vendor community as well. Christine Harada is Senior Advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.